0: Father, we do praise you this morning and do, as has already been mentioned, desire to glorify you and to lift you up this morning as we see you and your word and as you reveal yourself and reveal what you have done and how we fit into that big plan that you have for all things. We just praise you this morning and desire that uh, we continually praise you as we leave and that it would set kind of a tone for the rest of our week. We desire that uh, your word come alive to us this morning as we look at it and try to understand it. Commit our time to you in Jesus' name. In the world we live in, we obviously sometimes have conflicts and we see degeneration in the culture. We see things, obviously, that are not biblical, in fact, far from biblical. And the thought of us owning the world <laughs> might not be as attractive as we might think, but in fact, the passage we looked at last time told us that Abraham is heir of the world, so he's going to inherit everything around us, not to be transformed, and that's the positive, transformed into something very, very different than what you observe today. But... As Paul says in Ephesians, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. One of those blessings is that we are co-heirs with Abraham. So we can apply what has been given to Abraham directly to us based on other scriptures as well. So we'll take a look at some of those this morning. So, Book of Romans, we're still looking at the provision of God's righteousness, the major division of the book, but it's not automatic. In fact, people do not have it unless they have trusted in the provision that Christ has made. And apart from that, we stand condemned before a holy God. That's chapter 1, 18 through 320. What God has provided through Christ is what Paul describes as justification, most people commonly refer to that as salvation, same idea, except it's got a particular meaning and a particular area that it deals with, it's a legal term, and in terms of God's ultimate justice, we stand justified based on what Jesus has done. Either justified or apart from Christ, we stand condemned. So that's the section we're in. The main paragraph is chapter 3, 21 through 26, where it is described in some detail, complicated sentence, one sentence. We see the priority of justification, the emphasis. It's apart from the law, apart from works, 3, 27 31. And we're in a portion that deals with the pattern of justification, Paul goes to the Old Testament and gives us the Old Testament pattern from the very beginning of the nation of Israel. Now, the reason he does that is because there's a clear passage in Genesis 15 that lays this out. Abraham is justified by faith alone and he is granted or imputed righteousness. And there's a clear passage in the book of Genesis. But, Anyone in the Old Testament that is justified or anyone that has received salvation has been justified on the same basis. And that's true of us in uh, the church age as well. Chapter 5, when we get to it, there's benefits or profit that can be gained, particularly the first part of chapter 5. So we'll get it when we get there. So in this pattern of justification, we see the justification of Abraham. Now, we also see that uh, there's a relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. That's the portion we're in. And in verse 13, there's an Abrahamic promise that Paul focuses in on. We looked at that last week. So I outlined what this promise is. It's the Abrahamic covenant. And it's reiterated over and over in the book of Genesis. In fact, on your outline sheets, It's contained several times, i got several scriptures, but Paul calls it the promise because in the Abrahamic Covenant, at least my opinion is in the Abrahamic Covenant, God does call on Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised, but lest we mix that up as a work, As the Jews did in the first century, Paul goes even before that, before it's a covenant, and talks about a promise. And God does not have to enter into covenant, but he does for the benefit of those that he enters into covenant with, so that gives him additional security and basis to to trust him. He doesn't have to, but he does it. In fact, He doesn't even need to promise us anything, and he promises by grace as well. So the promise is contained in chapter 12, reiterated in chapter 13, and then eventually he enters into a covenant. And in that promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. He had to develop that because that's not specific in the Old Testament, that little phrase. But it's kind of the summation or the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And the ultimate fulfillment is during the millennial kingdom and during that period of time. Abraham is heir of the world, or at least he is given all things. So let's take a look at that a little bit further. We completed. Say it again. Lazarus. Esau, they described... It's all about heaven, Abraham's bosom. Right. I was if there's some connection. With Abraham's bosom, well, probably, probably another way of describing millennial conditions. So he's heir of the world. Now, we completed the verse, but I want to kind of go back because we didn't have time to look at kind of how it applies to us And in terms of us, we are co-heirs. So let's look at a few passages. It's not just Abraham, but it starts with him. And what Paul is emphasizing here, this is part of this great plan of God that is applicable to believers in the first century that are justified as well. He doesn't emphasize our co-heirship, but there are other passages that certainly do. So let's take a look at them. Romans 13, Abraham is heir of the world. But let's look up Hebrews 1, 2, which speaks Jesus Christ is heir of all things as well. Somebody get that one? Then the uh, 12 disciples, there's a very significant promise that's given to them. I've gone over this before, and I'll just remind you of what we talked about. Somebody look up 19 and 28, Who, who's got the first one? Got it. You want to get Matthew? You may not have been raising your hand, but you moved it, so get it. <laughs> yeah, don't don't twitch. <laughs> Believers, Daniel seven twenty-seven. Yep, there she is. She's waving. And somebody, Romans eight eight seventeen, and then First Corinthians three twenty-one and twenty-two. Got that one, Bob? Okay. First of all. We're in Romans four thirteen. We won't look it up. So Dwayne's got Hebrews one two. Why don't you start with one because it kind of sets context. Part of the same sentence. God, as he spoke unto God for the Father and the Prophet, in many portions and in many ways, last days spoke to us of his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, and also. Okay, heir of all things, his Son. <coughs> He speaks of Old Testament revelation through prophets, but in this time frame, the revelation comes through his son, and just a little added note concerning the son, whom is heir of all things. So Jesus Christ obviously is above Abraham in terms of heirship. So the whole world belongs to him, and some of the Book of Revelation outlines kind of the process getting there. So Hebrews tells us about that the old feudal system. Pardon me, sort of like the old feudal system. In what way? Well, the king owns the land, but then he appoints uh, someone to have a so many banners, and this one, right. so many others, and these appoint lesser nobles. Right. But uh, this is without sin, obviously. Christ without sin. The 12 disciples, 1928, who will eventually be apostles, except for one. Get that one, Jeremy? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you. Now he's speaking to the 12, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Now it doesn't speak specifically of heirship, but it does speak of them ruling with Christ as co-rulers, which includes co-ownership, you might say as well, or co-heirship. And that's to the twelve disciples sitting on twelve thrones, judging twelve tribes, very interestingly, above even the nation of Israel. Now, that's one of the reasons I believe that there had to be a, a replacement for Judas in Acts chapter 1, is there had to be someone to sit on that vacant throne. Makes sense? And then, also, there are several, and I've only given you a few here. Daniel seven twenty seven. you got that one, Ellen? And the kingdom and the dominion. Now, keep in mind, let me, sorry about that, give you the background. There's a vision here that Daniel is interpreting this vision of these kingdoms. First one is Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greek Empire, Roman Empire, and then there's an ultimate final kingdom that's gonna rule the world. It's never happened, it's never been fulfilled, so it anticipates a return of a Messiah, you well, know, not from Daniel's perspective, but from the New Testament, a return of the Messiah or the coming of Messiah from Daniel. And that's what's described there. Now read it. In the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the of the saints, believers, <coughs> of the most high, the kingdom be the kingdom Satan, and all the will serve it. Okay, who owns that kingdom? Who is ownership? Who are the heirs of that kingdom? The saints. Now, specifically, it includes a nation of Israel, the believers, particularly But it would be broad enough in terms of ultimately, if that's the millennial kingdom, it would include church age believers as well. But if that's not specific enough, what does Romans 8.17 talk about? Jeremy twitched again. (laughs) And as children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified. Glorified. So we will... Be heirs in the kingdom in glorified bodies, resurrected bodies, co-heirs with Christ. And if Christ is given all things, Hebrews one two, then we are co-heirs with Him as well, and we are co-heirs with Abraham because He's given the world. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the Abraham covenant. 1 Corinthians 3, 21-22. Bob, you got that one. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. All things belong to you. The United States is yours. You own it. We don't want it right now. We want it transformed. But when it is transformed, we will be owners of the whole world. Keep reading. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or, or the life, world. Or, wow. For life, or death, or things present, or things to come. The present. That's right. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. All things belong to you. Now this is ultimate, this is heirship, this is future, this is ultimately in the millennial kingdom. So we are co-heirs with Abraham, who is heir of the world. So Romans 4.13 has an application very directly to us as well. There's other passages that speak of, of the specifics in terms of rulership. First Corinthians 6, first few passages. We will judge angels even, the believers, resurrected believers, only believers. So we will be in the kingdom, there's others, if we suffer with him, we will, what is it, rule with him, what is it, can't remember the passage, Hmm? reign with him, yep, exactly, in the kingdom, several passages that relate to that. The crowns that are given, I think are related in some way to positions in the kingdom, blessings in the kingdom, of ownership, rulership, etc. Great application. Well, all things are yours. I know some pastors like to say God owns it all. But that also, doesn't also include just uh, the country, the United States, or Mexico. It also includes uh, possession of anything we own. Yep. Also, our times, our talents. Yep. All things. Yep. Now... Right now, we are sojourners and strangers in a land. We're like aliens. Legal, though. (laughs) We're not illegal aliens. We're legal aliens. We don't have possession. Just as Abraham, he never owned any portion of the land except that that he purchased to bury Sarah, and then eventually he was buried there himself. So we await full ownership until the Millennial Kingdom. So that's verse 13. That's the Abrahamic promise. Abraham as heir of the world or fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the argument that he's making here is he's dealing with kind of the contrast between promise and law. Or works, justification gained by works or justification gained by grace. So we have a close connection between grace and promise as opposed to law and works. So now he's going to get back to the alternative. It has to be by promise. It cannot be by law or it cannot be by, on the basis of man's efforts. Because what does God require? He's already talked about this, so now he's going to contrast that in the next two verses, fourteen and fifteen. So the alternative is law, but if law is the alternative, what is the result? Notice what he says. For in those who are of the law are heirs, see he's broadening it now to go beyond Abraham as the heir, and he's speaking by way of implication that those that are justified by faith are also heirs, but it cannot come by law. So it's a first-class condition which assumes the premise for the purpose of arguing the case. So if this is true, then what follows, that's first-class condition, faith is made what? Void. In other words, if it's by effort, then it does away with Faith. In fact, the word that's void there is that interesting little phrase in Philippians 2 where it speaks of Christ emptying himself. Remember that passage? Humbling himself, emptying himself, becoming a servant, becoming man. Same identical Greek word. So, making something of non-effect. Now, he didn't empty himself of deity. That's not what the, the, the word means. He emptied himself of the access or the ability to use, well, not ability, but the access to those divine attributes. For example, omniscience. There are occasions when Jesus says he didn't know certain things, like he doesn't know the second coming. Matthew chapter 24, not even the son knows the time of it. He also limited himself or emptied himself of access to his omnipotence. If he is God, he is omnipotent, but he didn't heal everyone. In fact, he didn't turn stones into bread. He could have, but he did not, because he emptied himself. Same word that we have here. But in this context, it speaks of faith being made empty, or made ineffective, if you will. So, kind of a strong word there. So, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and not only that, but the promise. See the connection? Faith and promise. So all we do is believe what God has promised. And that's what the Old Testament saints believe. They believed that God would deal ultimately with sins. That's what Abraham believed that ultimately there'd be a provision where man could have a relationship with God. God made that promise, starting in Genesis 3.15, but there's others as well after that. So faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. In other words, it undermines the promise. Different Greek words, nullified here. In fact, it's translated in a variety of ways in the New Testament. Here's a few of them. To invalidate something, that's the, the word nullified. Or to abolish something, even stronger than making void. To do away with something, in other words, doing away with the promise. To remove something. And I can give you verses for each of these ideas, at least from the, the way the New American Standard translates the word that's in the context there. Or to sever something, like cutting off an arm type thing. To bring to an end. Very strong word here. Rendered powerless. If you want a couple of other usages in the same context relating to the law. Chapter 3, verse 3. We won't look them up, but you can jot them down. And 3.31 as well. Nullifying grace. So that's the alternative. And then verse 15. This is what the law brings. If justification were by the law, no one, he's saying here, no one would be justified because the law brings wrath. Because nobody meets the law, nobody meets the standard. And if you fail to meet the law, the only thing that's left is wrath or God's judgment. Make sense? Now, I think through most of the book of Romans, when he uses the word wrath, he's talking about, in many cases, and probably this one, God intervening, like it said in one eighteen. remember it's in the present tense, that one is very clear, and most of the other usages of wrath, I think, are also in the sense that ongoing possibility of God intervening to judge. And in Romans 1, it's allowing people to live out their sin in such a way that it destroys them. You see that? So it's not necessarily... Now here it may be broader, it may be broader in the sense that there's ultimate wrath as well. But at least it's dealing with how God may intervene in a culture or even in an individual. And this is what the law brings. So you violate the law, there are consequences. There's the wrath of the state or the wrath of the government of Israel. That's what it brings. Because no one meets it. No one lives up to it. That's why it makes the promise nullified, because if it's on that basis, nobody makes it. And it goes on, but where there is no law, what is there? the result of that? There is no violation, or some translations translate transgression, but this is a better translation. It doesn't say to rob a bank if there is no law. Well... Don't use the word sin because it doesn't say there's. if there's no law, there's no sin. Because Paul's going to say in chapter 5, sin came with the first sin and death. Be careful in your interpretation here. There is no... Where there is no law, there is also no violation of the law or transgression, I think King James translates it. That's different from sin. Two different words. There's sin... But you have to have law that has a specific standard or a specific stipulation. And when there's law, then you have violation because you can't live up to it. If there's no law, then there's no violation. So his whole argument here, he's arguing from the inadequacy of the law to be able to bring justification because the law only brings wrath. And even if there were no law, It would not be transgression, but there'd still be sin because nobody meets God's standard of perfection or holiness. So that's the argument he's making there. So no violation, not no sin. There's sin and wrath and condemnation. In verse 16 and 17, we have the assuring purpose of the promise. The assuring purpose, ultimately, of the Abrahamic covenant This for 16 and 17. And it's a long sentence, starting in verse 16. That's why I put it on one slide, almost too small to read. So it's kind of complicated. We will not spend a lot of time on it. I'll just highlight some of the things. I just wanted you to kind of continue in the habit of dealing sentence by sentence. So, for this reason, that automatically ties it with what he just talked about, for the reason that the law cannot bring justification, for the reason that the law brings wrath instead, for the reason that the promise cannot be based on law, it has to be based on grace, through faith. For this reason, it is by faith. In order that, so it has a purpose, and everything else is going to elaborate that purpose. That's why I call it an assuring purpose. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. See the contrast here. Faith and grace are related. Faith simply receives what is given, that that is undeserved. Law demands obedience that no one can comply with. And as a result, if no one can comply, then the result is wrath. Not only temporal, but ultimate. That in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed. Now we'll camp on that word. So there's a guarantee here, or a certainty, or an assurance. guaranteed to all the descendants. Now he's already kind of specified two different categories of descendants. Remember that? In the prior passage... He called them the uncircumcised and the circumcised. Two groups are sons of Abraham. In other words, there are physical descendants by lineage, by DNA, and also there are spiritual descendants by faith, accepting the same justification as Abraham. So guaranteed to all the descendants, and now he's going to specify and spell it out again, but also, still part of the sentence to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's already developed that. Faith of Abraham, trusting simply on what God has promised before the law, justification by faith. And then again, he reminds us who is the father of us all. So he's already talked about the fatherhood of Abraham. And then he has a parenthetical statement in there, kind of a basis Just to kind of remind his readers, as it is written, where does this come from? Genesis again, the Abrahamic covenant again, but in this case, instead of Genesis 15, where we have the statement, Abraham justified by faith, we have chapter 17 that's talking about this expansion of airship that we just discussed. Okay, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. And you remember the chronology that I laid out? How many kids did Abraham have at the time that this was promised? Zero. Zero, okay. Zero from Sarah, he had one through Hagar, but none according to the promise. None that would carry through with the covenant. But now it not only talks about many descendants, but many nations. That broadens it all. We talked a little bit about that last time. A father of many nations I have made you. We'll talk some more about that when we get to verse 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, going back, Abraham, who did he believe? What's the reference there in this context? It's the, it's God. In the presence of Him, the American standard capitalizes it, whom He believed, Abraham believed God, and if that's not clear enough, even God, make sure you get it right there, and then it expands who God is, long sentence, a lot of parts, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The God who gives resurrection life This is one of the passages that indicates Abraham believed in a God that raises the dead. I'll expand that in a moment. Not only that, he believed in the God that created all things out of nothing. So he believed in creation ex nihilo. So that's the sentence, long sentence. Let's break it apart and take a look at a little bit of the parts. For this reason, it is by faith. That's the central part here. It is by faith. He's developing that context, contrasting it with law. Faith and grace go together. Law and obedience, or the lack of, go together. And the two are incompatible. Can't mix them up. It's just argued that in 14 and 15. So for this reason, it is by faith in order that, so we have a purpose statement, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Otherwise, there would be none that would be justified. It has to be by grace. None are deserving. He's already made the case. All have fallen short. All stand condemned. So the only way that anyone would be justified, whether it be Abraham or anyone in the Old Testament or anyone after Christ... Has to be on the basis of undeserved favor. That's why it has to be based on grace for this reason it is faith. Because you, all you do is receive it. All you do is accept it. All you do is believe it. it can't be on any other basis. So grace, law and works are antithetical to grace and faith. That's the point. That's his argument. Incompatible. Antithetical. Can't mix the two up. Once you mix the two up, you've diluted the, the gospel in any way that you mix the two. And in fact, make faith void and you nullify the promise. Secondly, it has to be based on God's character. God's gracious character. Based on his justice. God is a just God and by justice, must effect that justice, so it must demand a standard, and if you don't meet the standard, it must demand the results of that, which would be judgment. So it's based on justice, it's also based on its righteous character, and ultimately it's based also on love, and the three go together. Justice, righteousness, and love. You can't separate them. In fact, you don't have a biblical view of love unless you see the relationship between justice and righteousness. And if you see that relationship, then you come to the conclusion everything has to be by grace. Because justice, laws related to justice, righteousness is the standard that no one meets, so all stand condemned. So it has to be also based on love, which God expresses love in grace. So it completely eliminates human effort. That's what we mean by grace. Completely eliminates human effort. That's what Paul has just done. So it has to be by faith so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Now he's saying all here in a limited sense not in a universal sense. In this context all the descendants who believe like Abraham believes. That's the context. Not every single descendant. There are some that rebel, some that do not accept the grace that God has offered. But it's a guarantee. And let's take a look at that Greek word, the term, the It doesn't occur too frequently, but eight times in its noun form and about the same in its verb form, and I think there's an adjectival form as well. The verb has the idea of to confirm. In other words, something is confirmed by some action or something outside of itself. Or to establish something. In other words, the promise is established. Now, the noun form is what we have in this in this context, the noun makes something certain. Something that is certain, firm, unalterable, something that is sure. In fact, these are word, words occur in some of the other passages in the New American Standard. It's the way it translates it. And in this context, a good word is chosen, guarantee. In other words, when God promises something, it is certain simply because God has verbalized it. It's just like when God said, let there be light. Was there any uncertainty that there would be light? No, so the passage in the same context says there was light. Because God spoke it into existence. So also, when God said, Abraham, when he believed God, it is certain that he would receive justification. And because it's promised to descend it, it is that certain as well. God speaks it into existence. And I think Paul alludes to that at the end of verse 17. So it's a certain, firm, unalterable, sure guarantee. So when Abraham was given a promise, God had already guaranteed that Connie would be justified by faith. Can you imagine that? Those of you that know Connie, what an amazing thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. And not only to those who are of the law, who are those? In other words, those under the law, the Jewish people. And what did the Jews do? They showed that man can't keep the law. They're God's prime example. In other words, evidence in court. Okay, let's take a look at any Jews you can think of that kept the law. Even Abraham, starting with him, did he leave a, live a perfect law even before law? Did he still do God's standards? No. There were some things in Abraham's life that were not commendable. He violated the law of marriage, for one, and I think intuitively Abraham would have known that, even though his wife suggested child through Hagar. It's still a violation of that internal unchanging law that God has written on the hearts of all all people. So, not only those who are of the law, in other words, those under the law, but also to those who are of faith. And that includes both Jewish people that are of faith, the faith of Abraham, in other words, those that follow the pattern of justification by the faith of Abraham, But in this context, he's broadening it because he's already talked about that in the prior passage, 11 and 12, that we looked at, and the verses just before that. Those who are of the faith of Abraham includes church-age believers as well. In fact, any believer in any time, he would include those even before Abraham, the ones that are of the same faith, the ones that have received the same promise that God gave. The same grace; it's guaranteed. So it's guaranteed that we would come into that relationship as well. Who is the father of us? There you go. There you are. See Connie in there? Connie is right between the you and the S, right there. You got it. Not only Connie, but also Bob and Steve and everybody else all of us that are believers of the same faith as Abraham, with the father of us all. And he's not restricting it to those that he's addressing in the first century. So it has to be by faith. That's his whole argument. His whole thesis throughout this justification is by faith apart from works, apart from law. And he's arguing that case as a lawyer would. And then, in verse 17, a parenthetical statement. New American Standard puts it in parentheses, so you don't miss it. As it is written, in other words, this is Scripture, this is what God has revealed. And let's turn to the book of Genesis and look at it, because there's some things there that I think we need to call attention to that will help us to put this in its context. So in chapter 17, let's look at a few things here. Genesis 17, first of all, in the context, this is right after Ishmael. And again, it's by promise. It's not because of anything in Abraham. It is solely by grace. So it's in the context of Abraham doing something that God did not permit He had an Ishmael, so it's chapter 17, right after. So it's not based on anything in Abraham. And what we have in chapter 17 is a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. So let's read that, and let's just start reading. Terry, why don't you just start, and do you mind, Betty, do you got a Bible, or Steve? Steve, you want to keep on, and then Connie, we'll just keep reading. Start in verse 1, and you just read 1. Actually, 1 and 2, and we'll have Steve 3 and 4, Connie 5 and 6. Is it, is it Genesis, Genesis 17? Yes, Genesis 17. Now, I put 16 up there to give you the context. In other words, it's in the context after the sin with Hagar. And now in 17, we have the covenant reinstituted, the first four verses. And then we're going to read into the passage. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Almighty God. Walk and live habitually before me and be perfect, planless, and wholehearted, and complete. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Okay, that's the covenant essentially. I, it's between God and Abraham, and in other contexts, descendants. He's going to multiply Abraham exceedingly. Now, we're going to see later on, not today, but in the following passage, it's going to talk about Abraham in his deadness. In other words, and this is what this passage is going to bring out as well. God makes his promise. He hasn't had a son of promise yet. He's had a son through Hagar, but not... In fact, Abraham is going to kind of discuss it here. Uh, Steve, you want to read three and four? Yeah. At this Abraham fell down on the ground and God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. Once, once, once more, I am changing your name. You will no longer be Abraham. Instead, you will be called Abraham for you will be the father of many nations. Okay, and there's the passage that we have in the Romans. passage where Paul quotes it. Can you imagine Abraham... You know he gets this promise. In fact, you know this kind of this is ridiculous. So Abraham's kind of laughing here. Uh, he's ninety-nine. Mm-hmm. All right, he's dead, if you will, in terms of descendants. Sarah has never had a child. She's barren. She's well past childbearing years. So she's dead in terms of having children then God makes this promise he's already made the promise he's going to have many descendants and now he even kind of makes Abraham uh, I'm going to change your name <laughs> your name doesn't fit uh, exalted father not quite right let's, let's expand it to a father of, of a multitude that's what Abraham means so Abraham's not telling his neighbors no God changed my name uh, what's your name now Father of many nations. Father of multitude. What? When are you going to start having one? When are you going to start having one? Probably ridiculed, so he's laughing at himself here. So it's reinstituted. That's the reinstitution. His name is changed, 5 and 6. And now in 17, 9 through 14, we have the sign. So it's not till we get there. We won't read those verses. And more specifically, it's going to be through Sarah. Do you, you have that one? Do you want to read it? Read a couple of verses, 15 and 16 only. We won't read the whole passage. Sarah, yeah, that's a good way. Your wife shall not call for me, but Sarah shall be. And I will bless her, and also be the Son, and I will bless shall be a mother of the of people. Wow, to her, same promise. She's going to be the mother of nations. Kings are going to descend from her. A woman who has never had a child, past childbearing age. No hope whatsoever of having a child. This is going to be supernatural. It's not going to be by human means. God is going to do it. This is the promise. This is the promise that they're talking about. So... A father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed. In other words, this promise came in that context, that Genesis 17 passage, whom he believed. He believed that God is going to do it. And we have a little expansion of the content of that belief. What did Abraham believe? Even God who gives life to the dead. Abraham is is as good as dead when it comes to having a multitude of nations. He's as good as dead in terms of having one. Now, Sarah also is dead. But he believes that God is able to give life to that that is dead. He believes in resurrection. Resurrection life. And not only that, he believes that God can call into being that which does not exist. The ability to have a multitude of nations does not exist. God can call it into being. In fact, it's probably even broader. He probably believes that it's the God that created everything that you can see out of nothing. God created all things out of nothing. So if you want a passage that indicates that, here's one of them creation ex nihilo. To get right down to it every time anyone takes a breath. That's a breath. That's, I mean, work of God, yeah. God gives life. That is Abraham's faith. Now beginning in uh, verse 18, which we'll get into next week, he's going to explain in more detail this faith of Abraham and there's some very direct applications we can draw in terms of faith today as well. So we are co-heirs with Abraham. The whole world eventually will be ours. And we will reign with Christ, with Abraham. And I could have given you a passage with David. David's going to reign in the kingdom as well. There are at least two Old Testament passages that specifically speak of David reigning in the kingdom. All of us, including David, Abraham, in resurrected bodies, in terms of him, including Jesus Christ as well, in resurrection bodies. Now, who will we reign over? There will be a whole multitude of people that enter the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies, and we will minister to them. And some of them will minister to one another as well, both Jew and Gentile in a millennial kingdom. So we are co-heirs with Abraham in uh, the kingdom Because we follow after the same faith. We believe in the God that raised the dead and that rose from the dead. And we also believe that God is the creator of all things out of nothing. That is the faith that we do. Pardon me? Yeah, the survivors that are believers of the great tribulation. So Abraham believed in our God, or should we put it, we believe in Abraham's God, right? Who gives resurrection life and creates out of nothing. Bob, you want to close for us today? Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the incredible gift of life you've given us, for the amazing impossibility, humanly, of all that we've talked about this morning. We thank you for it. We ask that you will give us grace to walk for you in a way to honor you, to exalt you, and to cause others to give you glory as well. We ask the Jesus. Amen.